So glad you're here this morning. It's good to be able to worship together and as a part of that worship, study God's Word together. Um, I know Dom prayed for uh, Dick Skoglund, uh, but I just would ask you as you think about that um, this afternoon, think about Dick and Sue. Uh, Dick had bypass surgery uh, this past Wednesday, and um, he uh, has been doing very, very well in spots and had some struggles at times, um, which is somewhat to be expected, I think. Um, pretty serious surgery. So continue to pray for he and Sue. I know this is a very stressful time for them as he's in ICU and recovery. Um, and uh, just pray that uh, he would continue to make good progress and uh, he would be uh, back on his feet quickly and that the Lord would protect him and Sue both and, uh, and guide uh, the doctors and give, the, give them wisdom as they uh, just continue to oversee him uh, and bring him back to health. So uh, just please remember to pray for them this afternoon, this evening, as you think about the Skoglands. Uh, Dick is one of our elders and uh, a dear friend of mine. I know a dear friend of many of you as well. So uh, pray for them as you think about it. Well, Matthew 28 is where uh, we're going to start this morning, but we'll go other places uh, as we've been doing throughout this series uh, on the church. Uh, I probably told some of you this before, but I've always been fascinated by people who set a goal for themselves, um, a pretty uh, difficult to reach goal for themselves, and then work hard over a period of time to achieve that goal. Um, people who hone their craft and become very good at it and put the effort in to become an expert in a particular area. Uh, Bethany and I have a friend uh, who lives in Virginia, uh, this couple that we love dearly, we participated in their wedding and all of that a few years ago, but our friend Jordan started running, uh, I think after we moved, he got into running, and uh, this next weekend, he's planning, I texted him on Friday as I was thinking about this, but he's planning to run a 100-mile race, trail run this weekend, um, which is very cool and crazy. Um, and so uh, I, I love that uh, about him. I know there are folks in our congregation that uh, have done things like that before. Um, and I think it's just amazing. And if you think about it, there's a reason that as human beings, we do stuff like that. Maybe not the 100-mile races, but there's a reason that we set a goal for ourselves and work hard to achieve that goal. God has designed us this way. To, to function well and to flourish when we do things like that. You think about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and what did God tell them right off the bat? I mean, it's in Genesis chapter 1. What does he tell them? He gives them a goal. He gives them a mission, a task that they are to pursue and they are to fulfill, and that task has several pieces to it. Let me show you this in Genesis 1.28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, the man and the woman, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And we talked about this a couple years ago in our series on Genesis 1-3, to but this is the significant task that God gives to them, and it's not something they can accomplish quickly and easily, and it's not something they can accomplish by themselves, but... God does give them all the resources that they need in order to pursue this goal and to see it fulfilled. Now, it's no different when you get to the New Testament and you see Jesus and his disciples. As he's leaving the earth after he's died on the cross, 
rose from the dead, and he's talking with his disciples. He gives his original 12 and others along with them, and then I think by extension, all of us who are his disciples, continuing down to the present age, he gives them and then us a task, a mission to accomplish. And in the same way, it's bigger than any of us. It's bigger than even our local congregation. But this is the task that he's given to us. And here's what's amazing about this mission. He has guaranteed its success. He's promised it. And that ought to be motivation for us to then pursue this task and this mission that he's given to us. He's guaranteed the mission's success. And he said, I will be with you when you pursue this mission. Matthew 16, 18, it's one of the the only times that Jesus uses the word church in the Gospels, but look what he says. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, his proclamation of the Gospel, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He promises the triumph of his church and of the Gospel. You can see, as I mentioned, the word church in there. That Word and that concept, that idea of the assembly has been our topic the last couple of weeks. We've gotten into this short series that we're doing on the church called Indispensable Church. We've been talking about the importance of both the universal church, but then the local church within that idea of the universal church. We've tried to be clear on this. What is the church? That's what we talked about the first week, the identity. In order to understand what we have to do as the church and how we should function as the church, we have to understand who we are. And so we talked about the identity of the church. You can see here in this verse, Jesus says, it is my church. Our identity is not something we sort of make up on our own. It's not something that is moldable to whatever we want it to be. It's his church And he has determined who we are to be and what we are to do as the church. Here's the short definition that I gave you the very first week of the church. I know this is not the whole thing, but this is sort of the core idea of what it is to be the church. The church is the people of God, the community of God, the assembly created by the gospel. That's the foundation that we talked about last week. And then here's what we're going to get to this week. The task that God has given to his church. The church is a community of believers, the people of God who are gathered together by the proclamation of the gospel and they grow together as they continually hear the gospel news. But beyond just gathering together and growing to be more like Christ together, God, the Lord Jesus Christ has given the church a particular mission to pursue, a mission to accomplish. And this mission, what we do, flows from our identity, who we are. We are Christ's church. We are his people, his community. And this mission is built on the foundation of the gospel, the good news concerning the life, death, resurrection, ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's what we want to talk about this morning. And we're going to continue to talk about this next week, our mission. And as we do that, I want to ask you two questions to help us clarify what this mission is, and then what it looks like in our local church. And again, we'll flesh this out a little bit more next week. But here are two questions. Very simple outline this morning. Two questions to give us clarity on our mission as the church. And first of all, we want to ask the question, what is the mission? We need to be clear on this. We need to understand exactly what we're talking about when we talk about this task that Christ has given to his church. And you find that mission, that task in Matthew 28, 
verses 16 to 20. I'm sure a passage that is familiar to many of you, but if you're not there, go ahead and turn there this morning. This passage, the section that Dominic read this morning, comes right after Jesus has been crucified. And in chapter 28, at the beginning of the chapter, he rises from the dead. He wins the victory over sin and death by rising again. That's an important piece to understand as you get to his commission to his disciples. He is the victorious king. Look how it begins in verse 16 and verse 17. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. So his disciples gather around him and they worship him as the victorious king. And then in verse 18, Jesus very clearly lays out to them his commission, his task that he is giving them. Verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, here's the foundation of the task. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, let me help you to understand why he says this here at the beginning of his mission. You can't get to the actual functional task without grasping what he's talking about here. The basic idea is that all the way back in Genesis, the passage that we already read, Genesis 1.28, God gave human beings a task to what? Rule over, to take dominion, to have authority over the earth as God's image bearers. But instead of fulfilling that mission, what did Adam and Eve do? They sinned, they turned in rebellion against God, and they incurred death and the curse of sin. So Jesus comes on the scene, and here what he's saying is that through his victory over death, he entered into death and destroyed it and won victory over it. He has reversed that curse. And by overcoming it, now he has the authority as the human being that will fulfill the task that God has given. He has the authority to commission his disciples to now go out and preach the gospel of his victorious kingship. That's what he is basing all of this off here. It's his work on the cross in winning the victory over death and reversing the curse of Genesis 3. So what mission is he giving to his disciples? That's what's next in verses 19 and 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, some of you may know this, but it's what I'm about to say, but it's important to be very clear on the specific mission given here. In your English Bible, it appears that there are four commands that make up this mission that he's giving, right? Look at them together. Go, make, baptize, and teach. So in English, it appears that there are four commands that are given. But in the original language, there's actually only one command that's given here. Only one. The only command in this passage is to make disciples, And then you're looking at it and you're like, well, go and teach and baptize. Those look like commands. Well, they have some of the weight of a task that you're supposed to do, but what those are in the language is they're participles and they support the command, right? So the command is to make disciples, but you do that, you accomplish that mission by going, by baptizing, and by teaching. 
So you go to the people all around the world, you engage them with the gospel, and then when they repent of their sins and believe the gospel, you bring them into the church, you show that they have been changed by the gospel and are now in Christ by baptizing them, and then throughout the rest of their lives, as they're gathered in the assembly together, you teach And you continue to help them to become like the Lord Jesus Christ. They reflect him by obeying his commands and listening to his teaching. But all of that, going, baptizing, and teaching, show us what it means to make disciples. And they all support the making disciples, which is the main mission that Jesus has given to his church. Now, it's very normal for Christians when we read this passage to think that this, the Great Commission, which I'm sure you've heard it called that before if you've been in church, that the Great Commission in Matthew 28 is talking about evangelism. And it sort of stops there. So what Jesus is telling his church, people will say, is to go and preach the gospel and see people come to Christ. That's part of it. That's the beginning part of this, but that is not the whole thing. You share the gospel, you see people gathered into the church, that's part of the commission, that's the baptism part, and then you continue to fulfill the commission by making, or by making disciples, by teaching them. The whole goal of this is not just evangelism, it doesn't stop there. What's the goal? Fully formed disciples of Jesus Christ. And that's not a a one-shot wonder. That's not something you accomplish overnight or in a week or in a month or in a year. That's all of your life, all of my life. And so that is the primary mission of the church, is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. That's what he gives us here. And that's our first question that we've answered this morning. So if the goal is to make followers of Christ, if that's the mission, or disciples of Christ, then what is a follower of Christ? What do they look like? How do we know when we're making progress in developing a disciple of Jesus Christ? We need to understand what a disciple or a follower, I keep using that word and there's a reason for that, you need to understand what a disciple is. That's our second question. So let me try to connect this to local church ministry real quickly here. When you answer this question and you see what a disciple is in some broad categories, now you know what the church needs to do to develop disciples. Does that make sense, right? So, bring it into another realm. If your goal is to become a lawyer, to develop a lawyer, someone who is good at that task and is a fully formed lawyer, then you will need to know what a lawyer is and the primary skills that they need to become a good lawyer. If your goal is to create or develop an alpinist, you will need to know what that is. Does anyone know what an alpinist is? No one does. A mountain climber, right? So you have to know what an alpinist is, and you know, oh, that's a mountain climber. So there are certain tools that I need to become one of those. There are certain skills that I have to develop in order to climb mountains, right? And so it's the same thing with the follower of Christ. And we sort of assume that we know what this is. Oh, a disciple of Jesus. But we need to be clear on what a disciple is. I've already used one synonym, right? Follower of 
Christ. When you think disciple, you should think of a follower in a very literal sense. Because when you take this back to the time of Jesus, that's what a disciple was. Someone who walked behind a teacher or a rabbi or a philosopher. They actually followed them day to day in life. Many different teachers and leaders and philosophers would have had disciples during Jesus' time. This is not something that he sort of originated. But you couldn't claim to follow a teacher or be that teacher's disciple during Jesus' time unless you were actually with them in their physical presence. It didn't work to claim you were a disciple of Jesus and then be somewhere else while he was on earth. Some of you listen to different teachers and follow different preachers of the Bible today, but you've never met them. That's not a bad thing to do, and we have that technology at this time, but that didn't work during Jesus' time. You couldn't do that. You had to be in their physical presence and walk the dusty roads and go from town to town. And as you were following them, you would hear their teaching. You would see the way they lived life. You would see their habits and what they did in the morning and what they did when they went to bed at night. And you would follow their teaching. You would hear what they taught and then you wouldn't ignore it. You wouldn't move on and decide to live life your way and make decisions your way. You would hear their teaching and then you would implement that teaching into your life. Disciples hear the rabbi teach, the master teach, and they obey it. They listen to it. When I think about these sort of things, my brain always goes to examples from sports, the sports world. So bear with me for a moment here, all right? Some of you, this will land and you'll get it, and some of you, it will go right over your head, and that's fine. But it's become somewhat normal now in football, whether it's pro or college football, for a quarterback probably the most important position on the team, to have a personal quarterback guru, right? And what is a guru? It's a, a master or a teacher. And that's a very normal thing now. And what happens is that quarterback will commit himself to the instruction and even the lifestyle that that guru has set out for him. He has a specific goal in mind, and so he takes instruction. He eats according to what the guru says. He lifts weights the way the guru tells him to. He practices his throwing and adjusts his mechanics. He even has his sleep schedule set by his guru. He meditates based on what the guru tells him to think about, right? All of this is now a part of playing quarterback. You get a master or a teacher or a guru. Now, of course, with a, with a QB, quarterback, it's not about the person. It's more about the task, and that's entirely different than Christ. But it's not terribly far off from what it means to be a follower of Jesus. As followers of Jesus, though, we are committed to his person and not just a task that he has for us. So all of that to try to get you the, the idea of what it means to be a follower. And now let's get into some specific ways. How can you and how can I reflect our commitment to be followers of Christ? What does it look like in your life this week? You're not in the physical presence of Jesus, but what does it look like to grow as a follower of Christ? To more accurately showcase that you are his disciple. Let me give you three 
of these things this morning, all right? And they'll be on the screen there. First of all, what is a follower of Christ? He is a pupil of Jesus. When you follow a rabbi or a teacher, you must actively listen to their teaching. I mean, it's almost silly to say it, right? Who follows a teacher or a rabbi or a philosopher and rejects their teaching and doesn't listen to their instruction? Nobody does that in the ancient world. It defeats the whole purpose. But this is a necessary part, and sometimes I think we fail to make this connection. A disciple is a learner. It's more than that, but it is not less than that to be a disciple of Jesus. Jesus performed miracles on earth. We've looked at some of those. That's true. But what did he spend the bulk of his time doing? Teaching. He taught. He went around to different cities and he gave instruction. His disciples listened to his teaching and we have chunks of it recorded. Discipleship is not just a program, as we think of it sometimes in the church, but a total reorientation to reality. We begin to see who God truly is, who we are, what God has done, is doing, and will do in the world. In being reoriented to reality, disciples begin to view everything through a God-centered lens. You cannot have a God-centered lens without learning, down to the nuts and bolts of it, right? You'll sometimes hear people use the phrase, well, it's not a religion, it's a relationship, my Christianity. And I, I get what they're saying, and there is some truth to that, but it's not a typical relationship. There is, as we'll talk about later, a personal element in your interaction with God, in your knowledge of Him, but you cannot remain ignorant of Jesus and his teaching and what the Bible says and the content of Scripture and expect to know him personally. It doesn't work that way. So here's what I'm getting at. There is an intellectual, mind-oriented component to being a follower of Jesus Christ. We have to use our brains. We have to learn. We have to take in knowledge. That is a part of this. You, it does not require a PhD, thank goodness. It doesn't require formal education for credits. That's not what we're talking about. But this does require you and I to use our minds. Scripture is quite clear on the importance of how you think. It's not the only thing. We don't want to reduce our Christianity down to a classroom setting, and you will see that later on, but I cannot overemphasize how important this is. You cannot be a follower of Christ without learning from him. So let me bring this very practically into our church and your life, hopefully. What do we need to learn? What do we want to teach in the local church? Let me give you a couple of broad areas and then a couple of ways that we do this here at Woodhaven. The broad areas are two, the content of the Bible and then the doctrine, or I'm going to use a, the systematic theology of the Bible, the content of the Bible. So I'm talking about what's in each book in the Bible. What's there? What's in Habakkuk? What's in Ezekiel? Have you read them ever in your life, right? 
Not to make you feel guilty, but this is part of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's learning the content of the Bible, what's in there. And then it's learning the systematic theology, the doctrine, how it all fits together. What does the Bible teach about God and his character? What does the Bible teach about the Lord Jesus Christ, about the church? We want to know these things. We need to know these things. The stories of the Bible, the content of the books, and then we need to know the system of doctrine that is taught in Scripture. These are necessary aspects of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. And beyond just those necessary aspects, this is how you live life well. J.I. Packer said it this way, disregard the study of God. I'm talking about, and he's talking about, knowing the doctrine about God, his character. What does immutability mean? What does omnipresence mean? What does sovereignty mean? And how do those things impact your life? That's what he's talking about here. Disregard the study of God, and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfold, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. Now, I'm not saying all of this to put a burden on any of you. This is what we're to do as a church. We're to give instruction and teach the content and the doctrine of the Bible. We try to do this here in a number of areas. I try to do it on Sunday morning. But look, we can't do all of this in 40 minutes on a Sunday morning. It's just not going to work. And so we have resources of the month we make available to you. We have the Bible Institute at 9.15 on Sundays, where we teach doctrine. We do it all the time throughout the school year and in the summer as well. We have small groups to talk about these things and go down some of these roads and talk about specifics in application, yes, but even in the content of Scripture. All of these things are here in order for us to be pupils of the Lord Jesus Christ, to grow in our knowledge of Him. Now again, I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty this morning, but Our problem oftentimes is we just don't really study. We don't care. We don't learn doctrine. We don't read. Listen, in our country today, this is not an exaggeration. You and I have more theological and biblical resources at our disposal than any other nation or any group of people in any language in the history of the church. And it's not even close It's not even close. Other countries and other languages don't even have probably a tenth of what we have available to us. You can go on Amazon and order anything you want on any topic you want regarding God and doctrine and the content of Scripture. And so what I'm saying to you is it's available to you. And this is not to put a burden on you. It's to encourage you that the opportunity is there and to take the time to pursue being a pupil of the Lord Jesus Christ and to learn of him and his word. All right, secondly, a practitioner, right? Because we're not just a classroom. This is not a university setting here on Sundays. You don't come here to get your lecture for the week and check off a new box of knowledge that you have and then go home. It's very common for people to complain not in the church here necessarily, but just in the world, broadly speaking, to complain about cold theology and doctrine. It's dry, and it doesn't to connect to real life. There's a very common complaint. Some of that is with the way people teach it. 
I'm sure with the way I have taught it before and probably will in the future, that's a fair critique. But the response should not be to stop trying to learn. Well, it's dry, so I'm going to stop trying to learn. The response should be to work that much harder out of motivation to know God and to love him as a disciple of Christ, to work that much harder to connect what we believe to how we live. And that's what this is talking about. A practitioner. What does a practitioner do? They take the knowledge that they have learned and they wisely utilize that knowledge. They practice it. Sometimes people will talk about professors being their academics, right? And then someone like a pastor is more of a practitioner. They have to use that knowledge in, in the church and in people's lives. And there are other examples in other fields that are exactly like that. And both are necessary, but this is what you have to connect the doctrine to life. Paul does this all over the place in the New Testament. I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to flip around here a little bit in Paul's epistles. I want you to see how Paul connects the life of the mind, so the way you think, to your desires and your actions. He sees them as very much going together. Look at verse 17. He starts with unbelievers here. And you can again see the connection of the mind and desires and actions. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk, that's your actions, as the Gentiles do, those outside of Christ, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. They're not thinking correctly, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. It's sort of a, a circle. Their hardness of heart and their ignorance mentally go together and reinforce each other. Verse 19, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And there's the lifestyle that connects back to the mind and the ignorance that is in them because of their hardness of heart. But then now in verse 20, he flips over to believers. But that is not the way you learned Christ. It's another word talking about the life of the mind. Assuming that you have heard about him and, have been, and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. All right, so you've got all of these words, learning, hearing, being taught, truth, that deal with your knowledge, and now he moves that into the realm of your practice. Two, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness." The mind connects to your actions and the knowledge that you receive must be put into practice in your life. This is a part of being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Obeying him. It's not a legalistic thing. He's your teacher. He's your master. You're following him. He's your savior. And so you respond by loving him and keeping his commandments. It's a part of this. When you read Paul's letters... There is a constant belief that he has and an exhortation to, he believes that people will grow and he exhorts them to grow. So if you're saved, if you have new life, you will demonstrate that new life by growing. And then he 
exhorts them to grow. You see this all over the place. Progress will be made in looking like Christ. Go over to Philippians. This one is on my mind because we're studying this with the teenagers during the 915 hour on Sunday morning. But real change will take place as a part of your discipleship in your life. Look at how he talks about this progress over and over again in this book. I'll just show you a couple of verses. Chapter 1 and verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What's the good work? It's the gospel, and that gospel will continue to work in you until you are completed and like Christ when you're in his presence. Look at verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Growing in love, growing in knowledge, growing in discernment. Chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Chapter 3, verse 12. Not that I... The apostle says this, have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Being a follower of Jesus means you hear his teaching And you know who he is, and it changes your attitudes, your actions, and your affections. Paul even identifies this as a primary goal in his ministry. What's he aiming for? Go to Colossians chapter 1. A couple of pages back. Actually, forward. Sorry. See, you have to know where things are in the Bible. Colossians 1, verse 28. Talking about Christ... Here's what he says. Him we proclaim. This is exactly what we were talking about last week. We give the news of the Lord Jesus Christ. We proclaim him and then we apply it. Warning, telling someone that the path that they're on is dangerous, right? That's what a warning is. Warning everyone and teaching. Now giving the positive instruction from scripture. Teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So to be a practitioner, you use the knowledge that you have. And you don't just, this is not just an individual thing. We're talking about the church here. So it's not just you coming in, getting knowledge, and then trying to apply it on your own. This is very much something that we do in community together. We learn by being with one another and we apply by exhorting one another and speaking the truth to one another and helping one another in these areas. Hebrews chapter 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. How do you avoid that? But exhort one another every day. As long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. 
We need one another because sin is deceitful and it tricks us and it's always lying to us. And so we need another person to see the situation clearly and speak the truth into our lives because we often don't see it. One author put it this way about the church. Those Christians who keep themselves at arm's length from the local church are impoverished. They deprive themselves of the opportunity to learn more about the one they claim to love, Jesus. And here's where we learn about him. In the different faces of their fellow members, old and young, salty and sweet. I love that, right? Everything's not perfect. We don't all get along beautifully all the time. People say things that are annoying. It's what happens, but the Lord uses the community, salty and sweet, to help us to become better practitioners of the gospel. Lastly, a personal relationship with Jesus. So we're not just talking about a classroom setting, and then we're not just talking about being a practitioner of this, putting it into practice. A follower of Jesus follows a person and has a wonderful relationship with him. They know him more than just knowing facts about him. John 17, 3, this is eternal life. This is the definition of it, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So what does this mean? We could talk a lot about this, personal relationship. How does this work? Well, I think one of the things this boils down to is interacting with God, not just sitting and having a conversation, but interacting with him through his word in a posture of responsive prayer. It's reading his words to us, taking the truths of scripture that we learn and attempt to put into practice. It's taking those truths and praying them back to God in a way that acknowledges their significance for my own life, my own experience today, and working through them with him personally. It's utilizing these truths and talking to him in prayer about these truths. So you take the doctrinal knowledge and the pursuit of personal holiness and they lead to this end, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. One author, a lot of quotes this morning, but I think they're good, said this, for Jesus, discipleship was not simply an academic or religious program Discipleship was a life that began in relationship with him as master and moved into all areas of their experience. The disciples were committed more to his person than to his teaching. Following Jesus means togetherness with him and service to him in his mission. And this is our mission as a church. I mean, this is the bottom line. This is what we're here to do. Everything else that we do, all the things that we do have to drive this. Making disciples of Jesus Christ. We preach the gospel to outside the church to see people come into the church, and then we continue to preach the gospel to one another and from the pulpit so that disciples will grow in these areas. They will know him. They'll be pupils of Jesus. They will practice what they have learned, and they will develop a relationship with him that is close and is intimate and is very, very personal as they follow him. This is what we are to be about. This is our mission as the church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the clarity of your word. 
Thank you for giving us these instructions in a way that we can understand. And I, that's my prayer this morning. I pray that all that I've said would encourage, would help, would motivate, would challenge us to be more intentional in our relationship with you. We would be more focused on growing as disciples, and then that that would overflow into our relationships and our commitment to the body of Christ. That we would see this discipleship commission that you've given us as not only the responsibility of the pastor or the elders or the paid staff or the church leadership. This is all of us together, Father. I pray that we would think that way and then that we would live it out and put it into practice that way. Thank you for our time together. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.